felt like I've lost like 30 pounds a Sunday because uh, so much uh, simpler Sunday today. Uh, it was a good month with church on steroids, but I'm glad we're back to our normalcy and just worshiping Christ and prayer and the Word and fellowship. Well, let's get right into Luke 15 again. A closer look at these two brothers, these two sons, the older and younger son. And um, and Luke 15 was so helpful to us, so helpful to me. Fascinating study, the interplay between our Lord and the Pharisees. um, Our Lord had had many uh, head-on confrontations with the Pharisees. But here, in such a gracious, humble, wise way of exposing their legalism, their self-righteousness, their pride, in way of a parable, in way of a, of a fictional story. Um, this uh, parable of the two sons tells us this shocking truth that sin is not just what we do or we don't do. It is not external sins of commission. It's not external. It's not behavioral simply. But sin goes uh, much deeper. There is indeed a, a great heinous evil sin behind every sin. And that first sin is um, the sin of Satan, the sin of Lucifer. Isaiah 14, I will, I will, I will. Putting one above God. Substituting yourself and putting yourself in the place of God. It is um, abrogating the first commandment. You should have no other gods above me. The first sin that's committed in our hearts before we act out on that sin through our speech, behavior, decisions, is that internal heart sin of self-idolatry, self-worship, self-love, putting ourselves first. It is this unyielding, tenacious idolatry that has ruined us and continues to ruin us. All of us, it is, um, it's not a casual involvement in the sin. It is a a driving idolatry. <clears throat> All of us, we want to be noticed. We want to be affirmed. We want to be valued. We want to be comfortable. It goes beyond that. We want to be worshipped. We, our problem is, I worship myself. Why? How come my wife doesn't worship me? How come my children don't worship me? How come my friends, my boss, this world, how, why will they not I'll bow down and see the greatness of, of myself and, and, and bow down and worship me. It is um, this desire, this pursuit, striving to be worshipped. That is the core essence of sin. And these two sons, this parable, I, I mean, it's, it's shocking. It's, in, it's in, incredible. It exposes that, that there are two ways to be to feed this idolatry. Um, the one is the younger son's way. Just outright rebel. Be very, very bad. Live for yourself. right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And everybody agrees that's one way to live for yourself. What is often overlooked is the, the more heinous way of idolatry, self-idolatry, which is by being very, very good through moralism, through religion, through works righteousness, uh, you feed your 
yourself, you live for yourself, you worship yourself, you love yourself by being very, very good. And that's where it exposes us. All of us are, are like are torn apart. Our hearts are put under spiritual MRI by this parable because the default state, especially for professing Christians, is the older brother. Our, our, our reboot setting is every moment, apart from Christ, is one to control God and control others through our works, through our religion, through moralism. And Luke 15 has done that. Luke 15, and the Bible as well, there are two analogies to describe the Bible. It's a window and a mirror. The Bible is a window in the sense where we, God gives us this window. We're in a darkened house, darkened room, and we have one window. And through that window, we can see who God is. Apart from that window, we can't see God. Through that window, we look through it, we see God, we see His attributes, we see what He has done, we see what He asks of us, we see our past, our present, our future, we see God's will through that window. So a Bible can be an analogy seen as a window to who God is and His truths, His promises, and what He has done for us. Another analogy is that Bible is a mirror. Through the Bible, we see God, but through the Bible, we see ourselves. And not a physical mirror, obviously, a spiritual mirror. As we, James 1.23, as we look at the Bible, God reveals to us who we truly are. That we are not our gender, we are not our ethnicity, we are not our income, our achievements, we're not our, what our friends say we are, what our parents say, what we, we say we are. The Bible tells us who we truly are, but, and, and, and God has the authority to tell us that because He's omniscient. I mean, He created us, He knows us. And so the Bible reveals to us, and what we find about through the window and through the mirror is that through the mirror we discover we are far more sinful than we ever imagined. And, and Keller uh, says this, as we see the mirror of God's Word, we discover something just Shockingly embarrassing, humiliating, heartbreaking is we're far more sinful than we ever considered, contemplated, or imagined. But as we look at the window into God, we see that God is more gracious, merciful, loving than we ever imagined. So that was what we discovered last week. Last week, we spent a little more time, maybe 55%, maybe 65% on the window side looking at Luke 15, looking at God and His mercy and His grace toward both brothers. And we looked at somewhat at the response to the younger brother and older brother. So we did more exposition of the Bible, looking at the window to see God. Today, we're going to look at the mirror a little bit more, maybe 75%. We're not going to expose the Scripture so much. We're going to expose it, our, exegete our hearts. We're going to do some excavating. We're going to do, do more exposing. Uh, looking at the mirror, and we're going to get that, you know, that magnifying mirror that, that you know, our, our ladies love to use, right, to like, to get at the blackheads, right? So, I mean, I, you know, years ago, you know, I, when that thing first came out, Biore came out, you know, my wife bought some, all right, she wanted to try it, I'm good, but I thought my skin looked very good, and we put that Biore on your nose, and you let it dry for 30 minutes, and you take it out, and it's got this, like, spikes coming out of it, and it's like blackheads from, like, the 80s are still there, 
And it was like, wow, you know, but that's what we're going to do today, right? We're going to do spiritual biore. I'm going to look at this mirror and like put, let it kind of dry and like take it out and go, oh, man, that was in my face. I had no idea. But, but ho- hopefully um, you remember both. You remember the window as well. As you look at the mirror, we're far more, you know, sinful than we ever imagined. But you won't lose sight of the window that God's far more gracious when sin abounds, grace superabounds. God's mercy is, there's greater mercy in Christ than there's sin in us. So, how are we going to do this? We're going to um, look at these two sons, two brothers, older and younger, and look at ourselves and to see that, um, that there is... Um, Younger son traits in all of us. And then there's older son traits in all of us. And because of who we are, it affects how we respond to the gospel. Does that make sense? Like, like the weakness in the, the connection is it's not with the gospel. It's not with the word. That's what Paul said, right? Did God's word fail? Is God not powerful? Is God not sufficient? There's no, no, there's no weakness in God. It's us. It's our depravity. So how we translate, how we interpret, how we take in God's truth contaminates it for us. It's not because God is weak. So we have to look at us. And because of who we are, it corrupts the good word spoken to us and we corrupt it by, because it's filtered through our sinful hearts. I hope that makes sense. So we're going to look at, and, it, and we're, there's no black and white you know, all of us, as Christians, if you're Christians, you're, 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 you were a younger son, <coughs> and you're running away from that, but that's not just in the past. It's still in us. Like, all of us have younger son traits residing in us, and it's, we're still dealing with that, working through that. And yet, there is that older son side as well, and that's... Um, intensified because of our, our, our just, just the baggage of Christianity today and even in our church. And so that provokes this older side, son side, even all the more. And so it's not a black and white either or. It's both and. And so we'll see ourselves in, in all these traits. So I'm going to kind of contrast the younger son and the older son and kind of intermingle and, and then Within that, just kind of share some of my insights and expose in my heart how we fit in and how that how those traits are found within us as well. Maybe three, maybe three point five contrasts. Uh, first, the younger son. We, we saw in Luke fifteen eleven, he uh, goes to the father and he says to him this unthinkable thing: "Father, give me the share of property." And the ESV uses the right word. The ESV correctly uh, translates the Greek word. It's not inheritance because if it's inheritance, you are, it's just a, a stewardship. Like, Dad, it still belongs to you, but let me be a steward of one-third of your property, and I'll be in charge of it. I'll, I'll increase it. I'll maintain it. I'll oversee it, and I'll grow it for our family's prosperity. That's not the word uh, he used here. The word translated in the ESV is Christ's property. Give me my stuff. I don't want the inheritance. I want you to cash it out, right? 
cash out your stock, sell your property, and I want the money, and I want it given to me. I don't want to be responsible. I don't want to be a custodian. I don't want to any kind of fiduciary responsibility of, of, of the estate. I want it for me, for me to use as I will. And give it to me now. So we see here um, the younger son wants his stuff. He wants sin. And he asks something that is wholly absurd. It is um, incomprehensible. It is, um, it is just shockingly uh, shameful. And we see that pre-Christ and post-Christ in us. Uh, well, we see that younger side when, a, when someone is obsessed with his sins, um, he becomes uh, subhuman, right? not a human being. Right? You, I see this in myself at times, and I see this in others. I did youth ministry one time, and this kid got saved. He went home and told his mom he became a Christian, and she told him, before you become a Christian, be a human being first. Right? And he told me that, and I was so embarrassed for him. But I know what his mom meant. Like, forget about being a Christian. How about being a human being first? Like, basic human, like, considerations, right? Like, basic human, like, thoughtfulness. Like, human, like, kindness and consideration. When, when sin gets a hold of our hearts and we want something, you know, James 4, we kill and covet, right? We just read murder. Uh, and uh, I see this in my heart. I see this in others. When someone loves sin, wants sin, wants to sin, they become insanely self-centered, right? Insanely inconsiderate. They, they're like animals. They don't care about anyone else. Right? I mean, this guy, he doesn't care about his dad, his brother, his family, the community. All he wants is to sin. And we're like, wow, how can he be like this? But the mirror says, we're all like this. Right? Sin makes us ugly. Right? It makes us uh, criminally self-centered, inconsiderate. We just become just, just self-obsessed with what we want, and that's, and that's all we can think about. And we just lose our way, and we hurt people in the process. I, I wanted to share, you know, being transparent, but it's a little too raw here. You know, I could share about, like, dumb or foolish things I've done in my life, but to share this kind of stuff, it's too raw. So I can't, right? Maybe, you know, God will humble me more over the years and I can share with more. But what I can share is, like, you know, when I was, like, in fifth grade, <laughs> I remember uh, watching TV at home. And my sister, she's all three years older than me, and she was my caretaker. My parents were two incomes, and and she would, you know, she would like wash my face, feed me, put socks on for me. So one day I'm watching TV, and she's vacuuming the house. I remember getting so angry at her. How dare you vacuum while I'm watching TV, right? I got so upset, and she wanted to vacuum like you know, the space between the coffee table and the sofa, and I wouldn't lift my feet. Right? You have to vacuum around me. Because right, I want to watch TV. Right. Wow. What a... That's out of control. That's subhuman. Right? That's not a human being there. Well, uh, that's in all of us. This younger brother, is uh, his, 
what he did was closer to home than most of us want to believe. With the older brother, um, it's, it's somewhat the opposite. He does moral things. He's uh, externally righteous, but he has an agenda at heart. He's not doing it. He's not serving his dad because he loves his dad. He's got an agenda. And what's the agenda? He wants to influence. He wants to control. He wants to uh, uh, manipulate. He wants to, to uh, control God and other people. Right? Verse 29, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What is he doing? He's trying to manipulate the father. Don't do this. Right? Take that gun calf back. Kick the kick the kick your younger son out. Stop this party. Because I never got one. He's leveraging his righteousness to control the father. And we do this. Uh you know, he's come to my house and you know, after dinner, you know, I I try to help out after my wife cooks, so I try to help with the dishes and clean the table and so forth. But when the Lakers game is on at seven thirty I clean with extra ex- excellence, right? I wash the dishes with a little more zip and a little more joy and clean the table a little nicer. Sometimes I don't even wipe the floor, right? And with my wife, I talked about this. I have an agenda, right? I work hard so she feels like guilty. And then later when I watch the game, I can say, Sarin, I clean dishes, I did all of this, and I can't watch the Lakers and enjoy this time. Right? It's an agenda. Right? I want to control my wife. I want, I'm doing external things to get what I want. And I, I leverage my righteousness to make feel, people feel guilty and control other people. I mean, kids, all of us, I think we're just grown-up children. Like at our heart, the core of our being, in this area of sinfulness, we're still children. Our kids do this, like, you go somewhere and the kid gets angry and you're at the ice cream parlor and they say, I'm not going to eat ice cream. Right? I'm not going to eat this cake. And the dad side is great. More cake for me. right? More ice cream. So the kid, what, is the, what is the kid trying to do? He's trying to manipulate and control the parent. I'm going to go without this so that you'll feel guilty. Right? You won't sleep at night because look what you've done to me. You offended me. So I'm so mad. I'm not going to enjoy this cake. And I hope you feel guilty for this. Right? A lot of parents fall for this. Right? They, they cave in. And they cater to their children. It's this martyr complex. Some people, they don't rest. They work hard. They labor. Right? They never take vacations. They sacrifice. And then what do they do? They complain how they never get to rest. Man, I can never take a break. I work so hard. I sacrifice so much. Well, why don't you take a break? No, I can't take a break. I'm, I'm too important. I'm too necessary. And yet they complain to people, family or coworkers or friends. Why? To control, to manipulate, to influence, to make them feel guilty. Right? And that happens in the religious world all the time. Right? They go out with, they live a very, I don't know, frugal lifestyle. They live a very uh, sacrificial lifestyle. Not because... That's how their response to the gospel. It's in that way they want to promote themselves. They want to receive worship. They want to control others. 
make other people feel guilty. They want to leverage that for themselves. We see this younger brother, older brother in us. Um, for the younger brother, second contrast, God's grace is a means to greater selfishness. That's how like selfish younger brothers are. Man, like, this guy's no good, right? God's grace is a means to greater self, greater sinfulness, greater evil, greater self-centeredness. See, like, I don't know, but you would think, after the Father does this, okay, I'll give you your inheritance. I love you so much. Here it is. The son says, Dad, that's so gracious. I shamed you, and you've been kind and loving to me. And he repents and says, Father, no, take it back. I want to be with your family forever. I'll serve you. No, what does he do? He sees the Father's grace and love, and he says, I'm out of here. Right? That's great. I have my money. Right? I'm gone. And that's libertinism, antinomianism, pre-Christ, post-Christ. The younger brother in us, God gives us freedom. God gives us love and grace. And instead of having our hearts melted by that grace and love, and striving to believe Him and and love Him and, and serve Him, we use that freedom and get the cover for our sins. We use that license, that liberty, to feed our own idolatry of self. Right? And that's the younger brother's response. Right? God's gracious, great. I just want His stuff. I want His blessings. I want the forgiveness, the blessings, the promises. But I don't want the responsibility. I don't want the obedience. I don't want you know sacrifice and lordship and denial. I just want the good parts I can live my life and enjoy uh, the good stuff. The older brother, on the other hand, um, he uses father's grace to the younger son. And seeing that, instead of uh, seeing the father's grace to others and being melted by that, seeing how, wow, my, my dad was so ashamed. And they responded with such grace and humility. And instead of being humbled by that and being broken and seeing his own sinfulness, the older brother uh, uses it as a means to satisfy his own idolatry. He works harder. He obeys more. He uses God's grace as a means for his own idolatry. He uses the gospel for himself to to, uh, promote himself. Does that make sense? Um, Keller used this illustration. It was very helpful. He said when he was in college ministry, there was a guy, big man on campus, he was a jock, slept on with all these girls, right? And then he became a Christian. And they became part of the campus ministry. And yet they noticed in the campus ministry, like he, want, he had to be the leader. If you're in his Bible study, he had to be the one teaching. And if there's any disagreement about theology or doctrine interpretation, his had to be the right view. And they discovered that for him, his external like commitment changed, but his idolatry remained. Like for him, sleeping with girls was not about sex. It was about control, about power, about winning. But when he became, quote-unquote, a Christian, his idolatry remained. It was just changing of power. It was still about control. It was still about himself. It was still about him being in the center and leading and winning. Right? It was just different avenue. Right? And there was greater power in Christianity than with just uh, girls in a college, college campus. So this guy heard the gospel, and he saw it as a way of power, way for him to feed his idolatry, 
to see God's grace and use it for, for himself. So the older brother, the younger brother wants the stuff. The older brother wants the father's authority, the glory, the honor, the prestige. Right? So he can like be sacrificial. He can like work hard. He can like deny himself. Because for whatever reason, he's not really into the stuff. He's not working hard because, you know, of these things. What he wants is, is more deeper. He wants the glory. He wants the honor, the adulation of the older, of, of the father. So that's how he responds to grace, the gospel, Christ. It's a way for him to finally get that applause, get that attention. Uh, maybe one, one and a half more. You look at the younger son's uh, response after his repentance, uh, feeding pigs. He says, he comes to the father and says, I'll be your slave. So he's so broken down by his sin he has a hard time receiving God's grace, and he has an initial and a persistent perspective that he deserves worse. Right? I don't. It's not just I don't deserve. I don't deserve this. It's I deserve worse. Like grace is too much. There's a self condemnation. Um, constantly, you feel guilty. You can't get over your guilt. You can't leave your sins behind. It constantly. You just, it's your hard drive, you've memorized it, you're revisiting it, and you beat yourself up, and you can't receive God's love and blessing and forgiveness because um, you're just condemning yourself. Right? It leads to guilt, anxiety, fear, depression, um, being passive. Um, you feel like, I don't deserve that. And, I haven't talked to Bob about this. I don't know if you'll agree or not. But I think Bob and I were both kind of younger brothers in this sense. Right? Both of us in our testimony, we talk about this. I don't deserve my wife. I don't deserve my family. You know, I don't deserve this church. You guys heard me say that like several times. You've been around. It's that older brother. Like the older brother feels like, man, my sins are so great. It's just a matter of time because before God figures it out. And it's all going to fall apart like thick of cards. It's going to catch up with me. I'm going to be exposed. It's all going to fall apart. You know, where you sow sin, you reap, a, you know, you reap, you know, you, you reap what you sow. I'm going to reap it, right? It's, I, I can't rely on God's grace. I don't deserve it. And it's going to fall apart on me. Right. And so, in a, way, in a weird way, I, 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 you know, I'm kind of, I don't want to be psychoanalyzing people. I don't know. If I am, forgive me. But I see like younger brothers, they condemn themselves in this way and almost sabotage themselves in this way. Because they can't live in God's grace, they're almost happy when bad things happen. They, they seek after and, and exult in calamities and trials and, and like tragedies because their fear has come true. And almost they want it. They, they create drama. They create, they sabotage themselves. They almost like, intentionally in a weird way make bad decisions uh, because of this trait right I've got to stop there because I don't want to you know be rebuked later <laughs> right? the younger brother older brother is uh, the opposite 
Well, older brother, I deserve better. Right? I deserve better. I deserve more. Right? Um, younger, this is what the older son says. I never got a fattened calf. I never got a party with my friends. And you read that and you want to say, you're such an idiot. Right? You're such a knucklehead. You're, you're, you know, McFly, you want to slap that guy on the head. What is, the, what is your problem? The father says, everything I have is yours. Like, what are we talking about? All the towns are yours. The party, the whole estate is yours. Why? And the son's like, I'm, he's angry. He won't enter. He's upset. It's just like this. Um, you know, I, it's, if it's a little raw, it's because it kind of actually happened. But So we, we go to we're at Disneyland, and Ethan's not here, right? It's okay. So I can talk about him. He's angry because I didn't buy him popcorn, right? Dad, you didn't buy me popcorn. I can't say all this, but he's, I know he's, right? No popcorn, and he gets angry. He starts tantruping and making a scene in front of everybody. And you know what I'm thinking? Man, I brushed your teeth this morning. I washed your face. I, honestly, I wiped your bottom this morning. I, did, I wiped your bottom. And then I bought you your ticket to Disneyland. I brought you here and we went small world five times. Not for me. Trust me, I, it wasn't for me. And now you're angry because you didn't get popcorn? Man, like, man, like it's, it's incredible hope, right? How dare you? Like, I, all of this and you're angry at popcorn. Well, that's what this older son is, right? He's saying, you didn't do this one thing for me, right? You gave me all of this, but hey, and I'm, that's why I'm angry, and I have a right to be angry with you, and you should, uh, you should listen to me, and you should do what I tell you to do, right? And that's the older brother, right? Grace is not enough. So we older brothers feel this way. I deserve a better husband. I deserve a better wife. I'm, I'm all this, and man, I, I deserve better children. Why, 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 why is our financial state like this? Right? Man, I deserve to be paid. I should be living up here. Right? I deserve better job, better ministry. I mean, you go on and on and on. And so underneath all of that, your older brother has all this pent-up anger. This is rage. And it snaps. Right? When it just comes out like an explosion when they don't get what they want. So the answer to all of this, again, is, is the gospel. Right? The answer away from the younger son, away from the older son, is the gospel of Christ. Right? It's not from being self-centered, putting ourselves in the center, but it's putting God at the center, it's being God-centered. And how is that possible? We can't will that to happen. We can't force that. We can't program. We can't Discipline ourselves to be God-centered. We can't make ourselves be humble. We can't pursue humility. It is impossible for us. Only the gospel makes this possible. God-centeredness, call it what you will, genuine humility, true Christ-likeness is a fruit of the gospel. It's not a pursuit, like one of the many pursuits in life. We have one pursuit, belief in the gospel, and all of these other things are 
the fruit. If we try to to pursue humility, uh, we will miss it every time. But we will hit pride every time. We'll miss humility every time. We'll hit pride every time. Keller wrote this article on the quote to you. He said, we are on slippery ground because humility cannot be attained directly. Once we become aware of the poison of pride, we begin to notice it all around us. We see it everywhere. So we vow not to be proud. We then uh, strive, strive to be humble, and immediately we become smug. There is pride in our humility. Christian humility, listen to this, is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less, as C.S. Lewis said. It is to be no longer noticing yourself, how you are doing, how your walk is, and how you're being treated. It is blessed self-forgetfulness, and I will add, it is blessed gospel remembrance. The way home, the way away from being a younger son, older son, is to is the blessed self-forgetfulness and the blessed gospel remembrance. It's to remember the gospel and the grace that we have received. I mean, how absurd would it be? And that's what happens when we take our eyes off the gospel and put eyes toward ourselves. Immediately there's pride. How absurd would it be uh, the Pharisee, the tax collector in Luke 18? Pharisee prays, prays about himself, tax collector beats himself. Jesus says, this man went away justified. And the tax collector heard that. Someone wrote to me this week, and he stands up, and he says, Bless you, Father, for I am not a legalist like that Pharisee. I thank you that I am humble and justified, and I received your grace, unlike these self-righteous legalists. That's what happens, right? That's how, like, the deep our corruption is. Even as we receive the gospel today, we can take pride in the gospel, take pride in our humility, and all of a sudden, we are proud. Right. Um, I say that the contrast is 3.5 because at the end, there is a difference. At the end, it's only half a contrast because the fourth contrast is only a half because younger son at the end enters the father's family, enters the celebration, and receives God's grace. Right? The older son, he can't. At the end of the parable, he's still on the outside. He's still, he's still angry. He refuses to come in. Uh, I think there's a, I, I believe there's a correlation here with Mary and Martha. I think for many of us, we don't hear the gospel because we're like Martha. We're so busy. Like the younger sons, like um, John Reed's here, right? John Reed. Like younger sons, we, we, we can listen, right? Because, man, like we can't deny our sinfulness, you know? Like there's a, there's, there are records <laughs> in the uh, police department. So we can't deny that, that we're sinners, right? So we listen to the gospel. Older sons, because they're like Martha, they're blinded by their righteousness. They're so busy. Like even right now, older sons here, you're so like busy with 
this afternoon or this week or all that you've done or, you know, there's such a high presumption of yourself that it's harder for you to just sit and listen to the gospel and receive its grace, right? And so here is the older son, still on the outside, not coming in, not rejoicing, not celebrating because he's angry at the celebration. Because he sees the younger son is not deserving of this party. But because of his pride, he's blind to this truth. Um, that's the whole point of this party. They're not celebrating the son. They're celebrating the father. Right? What are they celebrating? They're celebrating his graciousness, his kindness, his mercy. Right? If, if they throw a party for someone who deserves it, it's in the honor of the recipient. But if you throw a party for those who are not deserving, the honor is the giver of the party. Does that make sense? Right? That banquet, where they throw in that banquet and all the dreads of society are invited. The homeless, prostitutes, drug addicts, the backstreets people are welcome to the party. When they come to the party, who gets the honor and the glory? Not the recipients because they're there by grace. They don't deserve it. There's no honor. But who is being honored? The generosity of the party giver. How magnanimous. How merciful. So the party was, yes, given to the younger son, but the, the, the person in honor, the person of honor is, is the father. And he completely missed that. And in his pride, he was blind. And he did not enter. I mean, last month, I hope we got it. We were honoring the founding members, not because they were good. They were not good. I, I have my records too, right? You know, the, the flock shepherds, we're not, they weren't, they're not like good people, right? The pastors and elders. What it, we're not good, right? We, we understand, and we gave you gifts, not because you're good, right? We, these gifts were given because it's by grace. And as we receive, we, they're, they're physical, token, tangible gifts to signify the spiritual gift, blessing that God has given to us in Christ to honor the Father. He's still outside. And that's why the gospel, it's a mirror. It really is. The Bible is a mirror. It exposes the heart. Like the legalists, older brothers, they could hide in religion really well. They, they fit in religion. Right? That's why like older brother, younger brothers, they don't want to come to church. Because they see these older brothers and they're like, man, it, it provokes them because it just, they're, they're reveling in their strength. It's just working out for them. They're like walking with a swagger in the church because think they're all that. And, and the older brothers do. Right? But what they're really doing is there's this hover, hiding. They're just camouflaged in the external works. And their hearts are bankrupt. Right? But the gospel exposes that, that. That all these external things works. And even the sins, it just reveals unbelief. Lack of faith. So if you're, you know, you're excelling in legalism, you're excelling in sin, it exposes unbelief. So, 
again, how do we come home? Um, you're sitting there, and I'm I'm here, and I'm like, wow, yeah, I see both of these in me. And how can I enjoy the Father? How can I receive His love? How can I celebrate and enjoy the Father? How can I do this? Um, so at the end, there are two paths for all of us. All right, right now, there are two paths that you can choose from. Um, past, a pastor named John Lynch uses this illustration. We're standing on a fork of the road. One sign, one path says pleasing God. You go this way, it's to please God. This way is trusting God. Pleasing God, trusting God. Which path do you choose? You say, oh, I want to do both. You can only take one path. If you take the pleasing God path, you come to a door soon, well, it will say, it will say, striving. You take hold of that doorknob of self-effort, and you enter that room with good intentions. And you get in that room, and there's, everybody's tired. Everybody's worn out. But, but they're proud. They're, they're ex- exulting in how much they are striving to please God. And next door, another striving, another room, less people. Some people are burnt out. They're all the more proud because they're the ones who last another door, and it keeps going. Right? This is where the pleasing God path will always lead. More striving, more effort to try to keep God happy with us. It's exhausting. It's never enough. We can never do enough to please God. And they're driven by fear, guilt, pride, and drivenness. But the other path of trusting God, there's a door and a sign that says brokenness. Brokenness. You open that doorknob of humility, you enter into that room of grace, and the room is filled with other people who are broken, who are sinful. It's like a hospital waiting room. There's no sizing each other up. There's no competition. There is no condemnation. Everybody's just broken in there. And that's it. There's no other doors. There's no more path. You're in this room. It's a feast. And you're resting. And in that room, the focus is on Christ and on His sufficiency. You experience the fullness of His grace, which is not dependent upon your ability to perform. It's dependent upon how much you lean upon Christ more and more. Two paths with very worthy objectives, but only one results in pleasing God. And it is, ironically, not the path that says pleasing God. When we choose the path that says pleasing God, we end up neither pleasing God nor learning to live by faith. That is where it's all dependent upon us. But when we choose a trusting God path, continually admitting our fallenness, our brokenness, and humbly embrace the sufficiency of Christ, that is where we experience both trusting God and pleasing God. Right. Does that make sense? 
It is there that our spiritual lives are not motivated by guilt, fear, or shame. It is there our motivations are love, desire, and the gospel. It's joy. I mean, two different paths, right? very different results. Right? How does that make sense? Right? You can literally seek to please God for wrong motivations. Right? You can actually buy flowers for your wife for wrong motivations. You could actually uh, preach a sermon for yourself, not for God. Right? You could actually, right? I saw you could actually aim to please God for your own pride. And so that's this constant treadmill this way. But if you take the path of trusting the gospel, trusting Christ, depending on Him and His finished work, then there's joy, freedom. There is um, celebration. I mean, this is what um, uh, Paul spoke about in Romans 1.17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It's not the righteous shall be saved, past tense, by faith. No, the righteous shall be saved and they will continue to live by faith. Faith is not just a means of getting saved or having our sins forgiven. Faith in the gospel is how we live our lives. It's how we live out the Christian faith. It is from faith for faith. Um, got a lengthy quote here. I'll share it next time. But just share with you, um, this is what Luther discovered when he studied Romans 117. Uh, he, you, know, you don't become a monk, especially in the 16th century, uh, for comfort and leisure and for adventure to see the world. <laughs> you become a monk because you want to please God. And he just, you know, he, they call it the insanity of Luther. He almost went insane. Right? Because that's striving to be righteous in the sight of God. When he discovered the gospel, it was for him a means to his salvation, a means to his life. This happened later on to a man, I'm sure many of you are familiar with, Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China. There was a, a book written by uh, his children or grandchildren, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. I read that book twice, and you know what? I realized I never got the secret. <laughs> Like, that's the title of the book, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And I was so rooted in my legalism, so rooted in my older brothers, brothers, I never, like, yeah, what is the secret? I thought the secret was he lived for Christ. He was intense about Christ. He, he was a missionary to China. No, I'm just going to read it. You guys are tired, but I still have some time. The spiritual secret is he discovered the gospel after being in the mission field for many years. Um, he wrote this letter to his mother. He, you know, he can't share with his you know, co-workers or to his church, but he can share it to his mom, his mommy, right? He opened up his heart to her. My own position becomes continually more and more responsible, and my need 
greater of special grace to fill it. I cannot tell you how I am buffeted sometimes by temptation. I never knew how bad a heart I had. Often I am tempted to think that one soul full of sin cannot be a child of God after all. I try to throw it back and rejoice all the more in Jesus. But how short I fall here again. Can you sense his desperation, his um, weariness? How he was falling short, he felt like a failure. And then it happened. If you have a book, if you have the book, it's on online, it's free as well. The chapter is The Exchanged Life. There, Hudson Taylor exclaimed to his co-laborer, Oh, Mr. Judd, God made me a new man. God has made me a new man. So wonderful was this experience that he could not contain it. It all started when Hudson Taylor received a letter from a fellow missionary in China, Mr. John McCarthy. This is what he wrote. John McCarthy writing to Hudson Taylor. I do wish I could talk with you now about the way of holiness. At the time you were speaking to me about it, it was a subject of all others occupying my thoughts. I sense so much consciousness of failure. Your constant falling short of what your aim must be. An unrest. A perpetual striving to find some way by which, one, which you may enjoy constant communion with God. Do you know I now think that this striving, longing, hoping for better days is not the true way to holiness, happiness, or usefulness. It is better, no doubt, far better than being satisfied with poor attainments, but it's not the best way at all. Consider the Lord Jesus received His holiness begun. The Lord Jesus cherished His holiness advancing. The Lord Jesus counted upon as never absent His holiness complete. He is most holy who has most of Christ within and joys, rejoices most fully in His finished work. It is defective faith which clogs the feet and causes many to fall. Let my loving Savior's work in me be the source of joy. Abiding, not striving, not struggling. Looking on to Him. Trusting Him for present power. Resting in the love of an almighty Savior is the joy of a complete salvation. This is not new yet. It is news to me. Here is uh, Hudson Taylor's response. I felt as though the dawning of a glorious day had risen upon me. I hail it with trembling yet with trust. I, have, I seem to have got to the edge only but of a boundless sea. To have sipped only but of that which fully satisfies Christ literally all seems to me now the power, the only power for service, the only ground for unchanging joy. How then can I have my faith be increased only by remembering Jesus, what He has done, what He has offered me, His life, His death, His work, He Himself has revealed to us in the Word by trusting in that and the subject of my constant thoughts. It is not a striving to have faith but resting in the faith given to me by grace. When this happened, a fellow missionary wrote, 
concerning Hudson Taylor's transformation. He was a joyous man now. A bright, happy Christian. He had been toiling, burdened one before with not much rest of soul. Now it is resting in Jesus. Letting Him do the work which makes all the difference. Whenever he spoke in meetings after that, a new power seemed to flow from him. New peace possessed him. Troubles did not worry him as before. He cast everything on God in a new way, gave more time to prayer. Instead of working late at night, he began to go to bed earlier. How great the difference Instead of bondage, liberty, instead of failure, quiet victories within, instead of fear and weakness, a restful sense of sufficiency in Christ. His experience stood the test of time. He had he experienced tremendous challenges in the mission field, and yet never again did those unsatisfied days return. Never again was his needy souls separated from the fullness of Christ, he was able to rest fully and abandon himself to Christ. So, that grace is available to each and every one of us right now. Right now. doesn't matter if you're the oldest son. doesn't matter if you're the younger son. There is greater grace in Christ than there is sin in us. And we don't have to work to receive this grace. God has given us the gift of faith. As Christians, simple matter of just believing in the gospel. Right? A mustard seed of faith of taking God's gospel at its face value and placing our trust. Then He'll lavish us with His wonderful grace. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you and bless you. Your mercy, kindness, and love melts our hearts as we see um, you gave us your only son. You gave us your best. You gave us everything. You sacrificed him on the cross that we might be saved and have life abundantly. Uh, know you and receive the fullness of your love in our lives now, today, immediately. Lord, we uh, set our sights on the cross. Uh, by that, we turn away from tendencies to sin like the younger brother and pride of the older brother and we turn to you and we hope in the gospel. We exalt and trust in the gospel. And we rest. We're responding Lord in our prayer, not trying to apply or strive or do anything or have a list, but we just simply rest Lord this day. Rest in all that you have for us. We just gaze and receive and trust. Passively receive all that you have for us.
Jesus' name, amen.